As we begin our worship this morning, there's a responsive reading on the screen. I invite you to read where it indicates everyone, and then we will sing afterwards. Let's begin. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you stand as we begin?
Well, good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church, Sun City West. I hope you're doing well this morning. We are here to praise the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I hope that uh, as you have come in person and those watching by live stream, that you are preparing yourself to experience him. If you are in person today and here for the first time, we'd love for you to take a guest card in the pew in front of you and fill it out, drop it in the offering boxes that are at each exit when you leave. We would certainly appreciate that. And if you're online, just send us a note. Let us know by email that you're watching today. This morning, we began a sermon series on when Jesus comes to church. We look at the seven churches of Asia Minor in the Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Very interesting when he came to see what the churches there were doing, and through that, there are lessons to be learned for us. What does he think about us as a church of the living God? We're going over the next seven weeks. Look forward to that time. Right now, if you'll join me in a time of prayer, and then we're going to continue our time of worship and celebration. Father, thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to come today. We're excited about the opportunity to study your word, to sing the songs of the faith. Father, to be engaged and, and focused upon you and your kingdom. And with all the concerns and the worries of the world, and Father, each in our own individual lives, I pray somehow we would be able to set that aside this morning, concentrate completely, focus upon experiencing you. And God, I know without a doubt we shall. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's continue that time. Sing to the king. Let's continue. Jesus. 
Would you pray with me, please? Holy Father, Lord God Almighty, Master of all creation, holy is your name. Thank you for this day in which we are able to join together in worshiping you. Please bless Pastor Kennedy as he delivers your message Bless all the services today. May they glorify you and feed our souls. Lift us all with your Holy Spirit so we may stand upon your word. So we may walk in the power of Jesus Christ. So we will be bold with our testimony. <clears throat> and always proclaim our love for you. Please, Lord, let us be powerful prayer warriors in your behalf. I pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, my Savior. Amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory, revive us again. We praise thee, O God, for the song. 
have your Bibles, if you will turn to Revelation chapter 2, or you can look on the screen, and we will look forward to what Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus. As I spoke during the welcome, we began a seven-part series on this very particular passage or passages in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. When Jesus comes to church, every one of us knows, without a doubt, that when we come here, that Christ is here. Individually, as we walk in our lives, we know that Christ lives within us. And so Jesus is always at church, and he's always with you. And so he knows and he sees and he understands everything about you more than you know about yourself. You know, every, he knows every thought that's in your mind, even in the deepest crevices, even the things that you have put aside and tried to seal because they're so painful. He knows. We look at the churches of the Revelation. They're churches that are doing the work of God. They're striving to address the needs of the community. And he commends most of these churches in wonderful ways. Yet. Yet. He has something else to say. Let's focus on the church at Ephesus this morning and just know that as we talk about the church at Ephesus, we also need to reflect on our own church, our own lives. What are the lessons that he's teaching them, commending them for, and that he has ought against them for? And we need to look in ourselves and at a ch- as our church to see, are there things here that he's speaking to us about today? Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lamps. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people or that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together this morning and, and sing the songs of the faith and come together at your word. And I pray that, Father, we would hear. As your word says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning, if we're willing to accept and hear what you have to say, you're going to speak to us. But if we already have our mind made up and we already have our opinions, we already know exactly the things we're going to do and we don't want your your word speaking to us, then we're not going to hear. And so, Father, I pray this morning that each of us will have ears to hear because you are the creator 
Father, you are in this place. We've come to worship. We've also come to hear and to be challenged. And so, let these words speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I heard a little boy, about a little boy that uh, went alone to church one Sunday, heard the pastor preach a powerful message on the subject, many are called and few are chosen. And he went home and uh, his mother asked him, well, what did the preacher preach about? He said, well, he preached about many are cold and few are frozen. <laughs> well, obviously he misunderstood the words, but probably had absorbed the spirit of the church. For there are many churches that go through the motions, go through the traditions, go through the rituals, but they're too cold to be effective, but not frozen to be inactive. Such was the church at Ephesus when John relayed the words that Jesus gave to him when he was on the Isle of Patmos. There are many things that Jesus could commend the church at Ephesus for, in fact, that's the way, as we go through these seven weeks, we'll find at most every one of the churches, you'll have something to commend the church about. To Ephesus, he said in verses 2 and 3, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. You have persevered and grow and, and endured hardships for my sake and have not grown weary. That's some pretty powerful commendations. I think every one of us would say, I'm going to sit up tall and say, we're, we're doing what he asks us to do. And yet, right in the middle of that, he says, yet this I hold against you. For those looking at the balance of saying, well, do I have more de good deeds than, than bad deeds? Well, the good deeds here in Ephesus outweigh, humanly speaking, and yet Jesus said, I have this ought against you. Let's talk about the commendations. Ephesus was loyal in practice. It was a working church. Jesus said, I know your deeds. The words mean active and aggressive service. They were hard at doing church. <laughs> they were involved in their ministries. They had organizations that were doing excellent ministry and teaching and outreach. They were focusing on discipleship, compassionate care, committee work, administration, and, the, and, and it goes on and on. They were very effective in their church life, in the work. And he said, I know your deeds. All of those organizations and committees, councils and teams, they were functioning like a well-oiled machine. Their deeds were well-intentioned but love in them. And not only was it a working church, it was a steadfast church. Jesus said, I know your hard work. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. The words here mean to produce at a cost of great strain and pain. When I was in Florida, I had about an acre and a quarter. I had this John Deere lawn tractor. Man, I love out there just mowing all my grass. A lot of grass to mow there. It grows rapidly, too. One day, somehow, I hit high center on that John Deere uh, tractor. I think it was a tree uh, root that was, had grown up, and I just wasn't paying attention. There I was, high. So I put it in neutral. And man, I tell you what, I gave every bit of the effort I could, straining every muscle to try to move that thing off high center, and I couldn't move it a bit. 
I guess I was moaning and groaning enough that my neighbor next to me that owned about an acre and a quarter too, he, he heard me, he came over, and man, the two of us could move with great strain that lawn tractor off high center. Man, I sure appreciated his help, but what I do remember, there was a lot of push and strain and muscle to get that thing moving. Well, that's what Jesus is saying to this church. You're putting a lot of strain and effort into this ministry. I know your hard work. You are doing well in that. The church labored mightily, but there was no warm feeling of love as they worked. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, it was a working church, a steadfast church. It was also a patient church. He said, I know your perseverance. In the King James Version, it's translated patience. Patience is somewhat passive to us. Most of the time when we tell our kids, we say, well, just be patient. What are we saying? Well, just hang around, sit down, wait. It'll all come to you. I mean, in our minds, that's kind of what we're saying. But the reality is this word in the Greek means more perseverance. It carries the idea of perseverance in toil on the task until it is accomplished. In other words, we're going to put our hand to the plow. We're not going to stop until it's done. That's the kind of perseverance. It's not passive at all. It's very active. We've got to continue on. It has the idea that no matter how many obstacles came in the way of this church trying to accomplish their mission, they were going to keep trying and keep trying and working until it was done. And so he said that's a great commendation, and yet it was still cold and loveless. It was a church that did not become discouraged. So it was a working church, a steadfast church, a perseverance type of church and a church that did not become discouraged he said you have endured great hardships but you have not grown weary the words carry the idea that they never wavered in thought or deed of quitting never even crossed their mind as they were doing the work of God as they were doing the ministry of the church that they would ever quit. They were going to continue on, work harder and harder. Listen, there were many hardships put on them by the officials in Ephesus as well as the officials in Rome, from the Roman Empire. And those were external, but there were also other religions that did all they could to try to get them to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you have endured hardships in the name of Christ, and yet you did not grow weary. They didn't throw in the towel. Man, they persevered. They worked hard. They were engaged and involved in the ministry. The church at Ephesus never thought of stepping aside or stopping regardless of the obstacles, and yet they were cold. Ephesus was not only loyal in practice, it was also loyal in discipline and doctrine. You see, they were careful about their discipline. They would not allow anyone who was doctrinally impure teach at their church. In chapter 2, verse 6, the first part, he says, You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now there's a word for you. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, they were followers of Nicholas. He was a proselyte in the church of Antioch. He had been appointed a teacher to relieve the apostles of the work that they were doing. And Nicholas had adopted and was teaching this particular doctrine that since a Christian was saved, came to know Christ eternally, and they were freed by Christ, then they could and should practice immorality. 
So I'm saved, but I can do whatever I want. That's what he began to develop and was teaching, and his followers taught that same thing. There are modern-day Nicolaitans all around us, preaching in pulpits, teaching in classes. They basically have that same idea. Do whatever you want to do, but you know what? Here are the practices that you need to follow. You need to follow what I'm saying. Almost browbeating their congregations into forming into this particular mode. And the mode was, hey, you're saved. It's okay to sin. Ephesus would not allow these Nicolaitans, these traveling evangelists and teachers, to teach in their church. And they were commended for not allowing that. You know, when we come to the pulpit or our Bible study classes, every single teacher, every single preacher ought to be preaching what God's Word has to say. The church at Ephesus, they focused on that. They were doctrinally right on cue. They also withdrew fellowship from those who were doctrinally impure. So not only teachers or preachers or evangelists who were coming and wanted to preach at the church that followed the practice of Nicholas, but there were also those people who took on a particular lifestyle. He said, you cannot tolerate wicked people. He commended them for that. That reference, I believe, is to the Gnostics who believed that only the soul was eternal and it could not sin. They also believed that the flesh was inherently evil and was incapable of any good. And so they thought that at death the soul went to be with God and the evil body was discarded forever. And because of the fact that sin in the flesh was of no importance, they embraced the idea to live in open sin. It was okay because you can't help it. Your body's just going to do it, but your soul is saved. Not far off from the Nicolaitans. And here he commended the church at Ephesus, said, you, you don't allow people. You disassociate with the people that believe. You can live in open sin and say you're still a Christian. They said, you strive to be doctrinally pure, practically pure, understanding that Jesus changes us, transforms us to live a life set apart for him, not to just go and be free to do whatever you choose to do. The Gnostics had infiltrated the churches of Asia Minor. You're going to find this as we talk about the different churches in the Revelation. Ephesus had converted all that they could to true Christianity, and the rest they separated from. They were not going to have a part of that because they did not want the idea of being able to be a Christian and live in open sin to infiltrate the church and lose the incredible witness. Because what difference then is there in the world? They see that, well, Christians, they say they're Christians, but they're living, they're living in sin. He commended the church at Ephesus, said, good job. Good job for making sure that you separate from them. So Jesus commended them for this practice, and yet they were still cold. So he said, listen, I, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your patience and perseverance. I know that you stand firm doctrinally. They were careful about their preachers and teachers, too. The church demanded that their preachers and teachers know and practice true doctrine. Jesus said, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. 
and found them to be false. You examine them. You try to get to, to know them and understand where they are theologically and doctrinally. I know when I came to this church and we had our open forum, we spent two hours just addressing questions from the congregation, asking all kinds of doctrinal questions and practical questions, personal questions, anything that wanted to be asked. Those are the kinds of examinations that you ought to do when you have preachers and teachers. Here we find that the term apostles refers to those who preached and taught. The word tested means to test to see if they knew enough about the doctrines to actually teach. In other words, a novice shouldn't be a Bible study teacher because they don't know enough. They, they need to understand the depths of Scripture to be able to teach others. It also means that they tested to see if they believed in the doctrines that the Apostle Paul had taught and laid the foundation as he planted churches all across Asia Minor. They were careful about the doctrines of their preachers and their teachers, and yet they were still cold. It seemed like they checked off every box. The entire accommodation leaves one inclined to question if there is actually anything that could be wrong with such a church. It carried on its services and its ministries in the face of difficulties. It rejected false teachers. It hated sin. It did not grow weary in the Lord's work. All that it strove to do was to accomplish the mission and the work of Christ. And that's what you would expect of a church, especially one who had been blessed by great leaders, the Apostle Paul, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy, and John, the beloved disciple. All had led that church over the years. But the Lord looks with a piercing eye of flame and discovers a great flaw. You see, Ephesus had, they had forsaken their first love. They were hard at work, but they forsook their first love. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You think about first love. You think about that first love that you have. Let's just make it personal. Everybody remembers that very first love. Whether you married that person or not, it, it, was, it, it was monumental at that young age. The first love. And maybe your first love has been your love all the way through in your, in your own personal life. Here he's talking about your first love about Jesus. That you came to know Jesus Christ. Your first love is the church's that you love Jesus. You accepted him into your life and your heart. And he said, you have forsaken that love that you had first. It's not the same as it was. First love is a honeymoon type of love. Years ago, one of Dr. Ray Summers' students wrote a paper on this passage and entitled it, The Honeymoon is Over. Dr. Summers said it was the best interpretation of these letters to the churches of Revelation he had ever seen. The honeymoon is over. Steve and Annie Chapman sing a song called, Who Are You? And it relates, as you go through the words, and I remember this from the 80s, and it's stuck with me all through these years. This young, young couple dating, falling in love, they could not be separated, and they fell in love, and, and they went on about their, uh, their honeymoon period. It was wonderful. And then they got jobs and careers, and then they started having kids, and then the focus was on the kids and raising the kids. And finally, the last son 
They waved, and off he went to college. And the song goes that they spent the rest of the day coming in and not saying a word to each other. And she looked at him and said, in her mind, who are you? They went to bed that night, and he got up early as he always did. And as he got up, he looked over at his wife and says, who are you? You see, they had grown apart. They'd lost that first love. The ending of the song, or one, one, one verse stands in the song, goes like this. But lost in the details of raising the kids was the thing of most value that lovers can give. Keeping each other's needs at the top of the list of things they've got to do. And sometimes we focus on all of the work and the busyness of life. And we forget that spouse that has been with us through so many years. And I'll tell you what, that's the idea of what Jesus is trying to get across to the church at Ephesus. You've lost, you've forsaken, you've gotten so busy in the midst of ministry and and doing all the busyness of, of Christian life, that you've actually forgotten your first love. You've drifted away. It wasn't something dramatic. It wasn't something that says, I don't want anything to do with him. It wasn't anything like that. You just got busy in life. You've lost that, that first love. You've forsaken it. These believers at Ephesus no longer felt the warm love that filled their hearts when they were first saved. Do you remember that? You remember that? It, maybe it wasn't dramatic for you. I was six years old, wasn't all that dramatic for me, except I knew something had changed in my life, and I will never forget that. They weren't actively opposing God in anything. They were working hard for the kingdom. They were working hard for him through the committees and ministries and teams and leadership, and he tells us that we are... We are saved to do good works. That's not the point. He wants us to be active. He wants us to be engaged in ministry. He wants us to reach out into the community. He wants us to communicate the gospel. He wants us to be intercessors. He wants us to do all of those things, but not at the expense of drifting away from him. You see, they just didn't love him like they used to. They'd forsaken their first love. That first love is like the honeymoon love you remember that feeling then you understand that's the way it ought to be all the way through your life if you keep the needs of your spouse focused yes it will mature and grow and it will change but it will still be there first love is a love that grows sweeter hmm. I'll never forget uh, 1983 uh, seminary chapel dr. Cal guy was delivering the message he was a missions professor he was retiring that year and he had been all over the world communicating the, the gospel. And he'd been a professor at the seminary for a good number of years, just teaching missions to, to all of the students who would come through. We loved him, his passion, but he was retiring. He preached his sermon, and at the end of his sermon, this is the song that he sang. Since I started for the kingdom, since my life he controls since i gave my heart to jesus the longer i serve him the sweeter he grows 
The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. Each day is like heaven, my heart overflows. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. That's the way it ought to be. As we serve the Lord in all the busyness, that we stay in that connection, and it's sweet. And the longer we serve him, the more intimate our relationship is with him. Not more distant, not more hard work. Sweeter. Sweeter that relationship is. You see, that kind of love comes to know and do what Jesus wants without conscious thought or without serious question. We are intimately engaged and involved with him, and through that, we just know what he wants us to do and we stay connected. The believers at Ephesus, they had lost that thrilling love. They had forsaken it. Well, first love should be a love that takes the drudgery out of labor. <laughs> I read a story about two girls working at a factory. After a while, one went away, moved away, do something else with her life, and the other kept working and then got married. Well, through that time of marriage, she, uh, God blessed her with three children. After about seven years, the other gal came back to the town, looked up and called her friend and said, hey, are you still working at the factory? She said, oh, no, no, I don't work anymore. I'm married with three children. I don't work anymore. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think being married and having three kids a whole lot of work. <laughs> well, what she meant was that the love for her husband and the love for those three kids, it took the drudgery out of work. She did it because she wanted to. It was an act of love. That's what she meant. The church at Ephesus was working for the Lord, but it was out of a sense of duty, out of a sense maybe even of, of guilt rather than love. Our work for God's kingdom, it's got to spring forward out of a love in our heart, not duty. We must do the things he wants us to do, but not trying to just check off the boxes and say, well, you know what, I've got all these things done, like a great organizational chart. My, my, my to-do list is finished, so me and God are good. That's not what he wants. He wants us to love him so much that out of that we desire to serve him, serve him faithfully. And so... We understand what first love ought to be. We understand that Ephesus, they missed the mark on that. The question is, have you and have we? What does it mean to forsake your first love? Well, it means to lose the thrill and joy of Jesus' presence. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Huh. We remember before God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. The motivation of why you do what you do. Now listen, 
Loss of love takes out faith, hope, and love. And you know what all that, if you take that out, if a loss of love, it takes out faith, hope, and love. So all you have left from 1 Thessalonians 1.3 is work, labor, and endurance. That's drudgery. <laughs> That's just getting the work done. But you have the wrong motivation. Paul says, this is what you have to do. He says, listen, you did great work, but it was produced by your faith in him walking with him, trusting him. Your labor was prompted by love, not guilt, not duty. Your endurance was inspired by hope, hope in Jesus. It's a hope that is assured, promised. Those are the things that ought to motivate us to the ministry. Now this is what happened to Ephesus. They lost their first love. They, they no longer saw that, that faith and that hope and that love. They were just working and they were laboring and they were enduring. They had lost sight of their love for Jesus, their first love. And that is cautionary for every one of us and us as a church. You see, Ephesus had a decision to make. When Jesus confronted them with this, here are all your accommodations. You're doing a great job organizationally. But you have distanced yourself from your first love. And they had a choice to make. At least Jesus gave them a choice. It wasn't a direct judgment. If this is it, it's done. And by the same token, he gives us a choice. Verse 5 says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Huh. So they have a choice. He says, first, consider. Truly, look at yourself in the mirror. Church, look at yourself as the body of Christ. Consider how far you have fallen. Do you really have that first love, that honeymoon feeling? The love that takes the, the drudgery away, that love that expresses itself in the intimacy with our Father. Jesus said three R's. He said, remember, he wanted the church at Ephesus to remember her yesterdays. He said, remember, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Go back and consider the things. Remember the things that you did at first. Consider them. Ephesus, remember your salvation. Every one of you go back and relive that time of your relationship with him, a time that he transformed your life. You may not remember all the details. You may not remember the date, but you remember the time that Jesus transformed your life. And if you can't remember that time, or you can't remember having that transformation in your life, then you need to relook at that. Because there definitely is a time. We're not born saved all the way through our lives. There's got to be a decision made, because the Bible says all have sinned. And if all of us have sinned, then at some point we have to acknowledge that and come to a, 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 a come-to-Jesus meeting, you might say, and say, I have sinned, I can't save myself, I can't forgive my sin, Jesus has done that for me, I accept him into my life. And I want him to be my Savior. So it says, consider, remember your salvation, remember the zeal that you had for Jesus that you first experienced. Man, I tell you what, it is something else. I've seen it time and time again, especially in teenagers, but I've seen it in adults as well. When they come to a life 
saving experience, life-changing experience through Jesus Christ, they are so pumped up, they want to go and witness, tell people about what Jesus has done in their lives. And then over time, we just kind of sit back and say, oh, I don't want to express those feelings too much, that zeal too much. I'm just going to sit off over here to the side, and we grow cold. The zeal's got to be remembered and maintained. Ephesus, don't only, don't just remember your yesterdays and the salvation, but remember the power that you had when you were close to your first love. The moving of God's Spirit in your life, you felt you could do anything that Christ wanted you to do because He was empowering. They had shaken the Ionian world. So much so that if you remember in Ephesus, people were coming to know Jesus Christ left and right. They were leaving pagan worship that a gentleman by the name of Demetrius had called all of the silversmiths together. They were trying to start a riot to stop these Christians because the, the new believers coming to Christ were throwing away their idols and it was destroying the bottom line of the silversmith industry. And so they were trying to do everything they could to come against the Christians to stop them. They had revolutionized in those early days that area. Why did they do that? Because they had a zeal for evangelism. And a zeal to tell people about Jesus. He says, remember those days. Remember how pumped up you were for Jesus. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not just sitting back, taking it ease in Zion, just doing the organizational stuff. Jesus says, remember your early joy and your zest and your love for Jesus Christ and his work. Remember the driving force of that love and that intimacy. He says, remember. Secondly, Jesus said, repent. He urged them to repent. The word repent means to turn and drive out sin. To turn from and to drive out the sin. In this case, Jesus was ur urging them to drive out the coldness of their hearts and turn back to him and the fire of the Spirit of God that was in them before. I'm sure the church at Ephesus, when they read this letter, they did some, quite some reflection. For somebody to come and tell you when you think you're working hard and doing all the right things and checking off all the boxes, you think everything is okay, and, and then Jesus comes and meets you and says to you, listen, here's what's going on. You're doing great in all of these things, but you're cold. Now your heart would hurt, almost probably offended. Well, who are you, Jesus? <laughs> well, he is Jesus, isn't he? And he knows. It's a hard reckoning. But he said, I want you to come back. I want you to be on fire for me. Repent is the condition of service without love which you have allowed to creep into your life. It says, repent of that condition of just working for the Lord without the love that prompted the labor. It's deadly. It's deadly and an enemy to the effect work of the kingdom of God and the growth of the individual. But Jesus said, remember. He said, repent. 
And third, he said, return. Jesus told them to return. Here's what Jesus is saying. Please, come back. Come back to the first place. Come back to that first love. It's not already gone. You can still make your way back. That's hope. And he's saying the same thing to every one of us. The idea of return is to return to that original state of service out of a heart of love. Christ warns that if if we don't return to that first state, that we are forfeiting the right to exist as a church. There are plenty of dead churches across America. They come together and they meet, but they're dead because they have lost their first love and they have no desire or concern to go back. He says, listen, if you don't return to that first love, you're forfeiting the right to exist. In fact, he threatens to remove the lampstand out of its place. And I'm telling you, there are churches all over this country that the lampstand has been moved. They meet, but it's cold. They're not doing anything for the kingdom of God. The lampstand is the church, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, and it has no right to exist if we're not going to carry out the purpose for which Jesus created the church. And this is a strong warning to any church. Churches are not supposed to be country clubs. Rather, they're like hospitals. Every one of us are wounded and hurt and sinful, and this is the place that we can get healing. This is the place we can come to get refuge, but it takes a warmth, it takes a love, our first love to have that kind of compassion. Preacher, that's what I want to do, but I don't, know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. Well, it's pretty easy in theory, not easy in practice. You do have to talk to God about the whole problem of why you might not be on fire like you used to be. You, you and God have to deal with that. Ask him why. Ask him what's going on. Ask him what's in your life that's keeping you from being on fire the way that you used to be on fire. And then ask him to help you come back. God, I can't do this on my own, but I ask for you to help me in the power of your spirit. And then third, forget about yourself and do the things that please him. So many times we do the things that we think we can do or we want to do, but we're not quite sure that we're doing the things he wants us to do. If you're walking with him and you're back in love with that first first love, let me tell you what, he's going to share with you the passion of what you ought to be doing. And that is to please him. Sometimes people pray, Lord, help me feel right with you, and nothing happens. Because we're talking about feelings, or they're talking about feelings. We're not talking about feelings here, because some days I get up, and man, I don't feel good. There are other days I feel great. That has nothing to do with what my relationship with Christ is. What he desires for us to do is what pleases him. And no just actions... He didn't want us just to go about doing things, but he wants us to please him. And the question is, what is it that pleases him? The psalmist said in Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, not in the pleasure of the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. And so don't look to man. Don't look to other resources. What pleases the Lord is to fear him, not in a scared fear, but an awesome that you are God. And then 
He wants you to have hope in his steadfast love. Renew that first love. My friends, fall back in love with Jesus. Serve him out of the abundance of love, not duty or obligation. You can do it. I promise you. Over the course of, of the years of marriage counseling, I have seen numerous marriages where there have been infidelity and moral issues where we have over the course of time been able to bring them back together and they are still married today. Back in one of my churches I had five young to middle-aged couples that all of them, every single one of them in, in their marriage, one or the other spouse uh, had, uh, had infidelity. And I'm wondering, man, are we going to be able to walk ourselves through this? And you know what? Which is unusual, but all five of those couples, we worked through that process. There was forgiveness, acknowledgement. There was a focus on, on renewing that love. And to this day, all five of those couples are still together. So it can happen. We fall back in love. The same way with Jesus. We can fall back in love with Jesus. Ephesus was a good church. It was active, it was loyal, but it was a cold church. And Jesus said, return to your first love. If not, I'm going to remove your light. And that's a warning to every single one of us and to our church itself. It's time for us to get our house in order, to make sure we're right where Jesus wants us to be, that we are in love with Jesus and it shows and it prompts all of our ministry rather than just out of duty. And individually, we've got to make sure that we are in love. Jesus gave Ephesus the opportunity to do that, and he gives us the same opportunity today. And so this morning, as we move into our time of invitation, it is a very simple invitation. Number one, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've never had a, uh, a time in your life that you have realized your sin, knew you couldn't save yourself, knowing that Jesus did die on the cross for your sins, was raised up from the dead, and he will, if you ask him genuinely, come into your life and take your sin away and give you life everlasting and life abundant here. If you've never had that happen, today can be the day for you. No matter if it's in your home or right here in this worship center, today can be the day of the transformation. And I challenge you and encourage you to make that decision public. I'll help you in every way I can. It's also a time of rededication, remembering, repenting, and returning for us individually and also as the body of Christ. Make sure we have that first love, that we haven't drifted away, but that we have that bonfire. It says, man, the only reason I exist today and have life is because of Jesus, and I want that intimacy to continue. And today, you can rededicate, recommit your life right where you are. You can come down to the prayer altar. You can pray with me. But listen, is the day that you need to. Jesus gives you this opportunity right now. You can pass it up. But he doesn't necessarily mean that if you pass it up, he's not going to remove that beautiful light that you have. Not your salvation if you genuinely have a relationship with Christ, but that burning fire. And it's cold for believers who aren't intimate with him. So today's the day that you can return to him, rededicate your life. There may be others who want to join this church, be a part of this fellowship, even in this pandemic, 
Maybe we have ministries that you, you don't even see that are going on, not only here, but in this region and around the world that we're involved in. You can be a part of that. So as God leads you, you come. Make the decision that he wants you to make. Let's stand and sing our invitation to him. Jesus is Savior and Lord of First, I want to thank you so much for your prayers this week for our daughter and son-in-law. We have two, uh, as you may have seen, two brand new twin boys that were born on Thursday. So excited. We haven't been able to see them or touch them. You know, they're in the hospital. And in fact, they're in the, the NICU, the, uh, the uh, um, uh, newborn ICU unit. Probably will be there another week or two. We're not quite sure. They're off of oxygen, though, which is exciting. But uh, they came a, a, about a month early because of, of some issues. And so they may stay there for a while, but uh, they're doing okay. And, uh, and mom is, is healthy. They're going to probably be released tomorrow to come home. So we're excited about that. You keep praying for them. But I tell you what, looking at all those pictures, we probably only have 100 or two by now. Uh, <laughs> they are just so exciting. And we're looking forward to being able to hold them uh, in a, well, probably a couple of weeks or so. So thank you for your prayers. Also wanted to, uh, to remind you that this afternoon... Uh, at 4 o'clock, we're going to meet back in here in the worship center. Um, yes? It's not on? Huh. Yeah, it's off of mute. Yeah, I don't know. Let me take off my mask. Can you hear me better now? Huh. How about that? <laughs> this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're going to have an ordination service for four brand new deacons and what's going to happen at three o'clock uh our retired uh, ordained ministers and deacons the ordained deacons are going to come together and uh, have a time with these uh, these four that the church has set aside for ordination and they will talk to them more uh, our deacons already have but they will talk to them more and bring a recommendation to the ordain uh, the ordination service at four o'clock here um, if you've never been to a deacon ordination service, this will be a great time. We're going to continue to be social distance, wear masks, but it's going to be very special. So I hope that you will be here at 4 o'clock today and support those that are, are taking this step uh, to move forward. And one of the two offices of the church, the pastor and the deacons, it's a very special time, very sacred time, 
and one that is engaged and involved in ministry. So please, at 4 o'clock, if you can make it. Last thing I have, and then I'm going to turn it over to Nancy. Did you guys see these bags when you came in? Anybody pick one up? Anybody use one? Man, I tell you what, I just was over there, and I put mine in. I was singing. I thought, man, this is great. On your way out, get it. This is a little, this is a little, um, helps you breathe when you're singing or whatever. It fits right into any mask that I've seen. And you just put it in there, and uh, you put that back on, and man, I tell you what, all of a sudden, I can breathe a whole lot better. I can sing better. I still don't have anything coming out that I can tell <laughs> as far as droplets. So we bought enough for the congregation to have them. Use them wherever, but we ask you, please bring them back, not to give to anybody, but so that you can enjoy the worship as, <laughs> as best you possibly can, being able to, uh, to breathe and to sing, and I promise you it'll make a difference, okay? So we have that for you, and I hope that you will, uh, will continue to use that. I'll turn it over to Nancy. I hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of this day. We look forward to the ordination tonight. You may have noticed there's a table in both the breezeway as well as in the main lobby with some baby bottles. The missions committee would encourage you to take one or more of those baby bottles, fill them up with coins, checks made payable to New Life Pregnancy Center, or with folding money, quiet money. All of that money will go to help the ministry of New Life Pregnancies. Uh, we sponsor financially, that's one of our mission points, and those are out there for the next couple of weeks, and then you are encouraged to bring them back after they are filled. Just put them back on the table, and someone will make sure those fill bottles are picked up each week. But that's the reason they are there, and I hope you will plan to participate in that. A lot of wonderful ministries are done by New Life Pregnancy Centers. One of our newest church members, Casey Boss, who is the newly elected chairperson of our security team, is going to lead us in our closing prayer, and then our ushers will help you exit safely. Casey? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you, and God, we just thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. God, as we study the churches and what's expected of the churches, we pray that you will lead us and guide us. And Father, we just again thank you for your word. God, we pray that it, it will not only apply to the churches, Lord, but to ourselves as well. God, we pray that as we go out now into the neighborhood and into the world, that maybe people will come up to us and say, what is that love that you have? And we can say it is our first love, our love for God and for his son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.